Hi, this is Beth AQ, and this is the podcast of The Glass House, a weekly radio show that airs on Triple R each Wednesday. The Glass House is a space for spoken word artists, poets, sound makers, audio storytellers, emerging cultural leaders, thinkers, writers, and anyone who celebrates story as a means of self-expression, self-representation, and community building. I hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch via Twitter at BethanyAQ or the Triple R website. Welcome to The Glass House. I'm Anna Stremple and I'm filling in for Beth AQ today and I'm broadcasting today from the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation and I pay my respects to Elders past and present. I acknowledge that these are stolen lands and that sovereignty was never ceded. On the show today, filling in for Beth AQ, I'll be speaking very soon with Tom Patterson, who's just released his debut novel. It's called Missing, and it tells the story of a man who lived rough in the remote gorge country of northwestern New South Wales for 35 years. It's a really moving and um, actually quite incredible story, and it's true. So Tom's going to talk to us about the story itself and also a bit about his process, how he came to write the story um, and how he, he went about researching it and putting it together. And that is quite an interesting story in itself as well. So I'm really looking forward to that conversation. A bit later on in the show, I'll be speaking with uh, Gabrielle Wong. She's the new Australian Children's Laureate. She's an acclaimed author, illustrator and artist, and she's just been appointed to the Laureate role. So I'm looking forward to hearing about the role itself and what Gabrielle will bring to it. Now, I've got author Tom Patterson on the line with me now. Tom, thank you so much for joining me on the phone on The Glass House today. It's lovely to be here, Anna. Now, you're calling in from Sydney and, of course, we're all watching the news and um, hearing what's um, happening in New South Wales and Queensland with the floods at the moment. How are things where you are? Where I am, we're fine. So the backyard is basically a swamp, um, but the rest of the house is fine. Uh, It's to the south near the Georges River and up in the northwest that it seems to be really wet. Mm. Well, I won't uh, make you talk about the weather for too long. <laughs> brought you on today to talk about your first book, which you've just put out. It's called Missing, and it's the true story of Mark May, who walked into the remote gorge country of northwest New South Wales as a 28-year-old and ended up living there in rough camps for more than three decades. Before we, we get into um, the story, firstly, I just wanted to say congratulations on the book. It's really stunning. Thanks very much. I just finished reading it this morning, just really cutting it close to the line there. And <laughs> Look, there's so much that I want to ask you um, about the story itself and about your process um, of putting it together. So let's get into it. Um, I should say, before we get into, into it, you and I do go a fair way back, but we haven't been in touch much over the past few years and suddenly I discover that you're a published author. Can you tell us a bit about how you actually came to write this story? Yeah, so look, it's a bit of a surprise. So I, um, as you know, I'm an environmental engineer. My area is water. But for the last sort of four or five years, I've been writing little things here and there, reviews of books, um, little stories for papers. And then this story came along and I thought it's just too good to pass up. Um, initially it was going to be a story just for the newspaper, but then as it grew and grew, I realised I had enough material for a book, and so that's what I did. 
And when you say the story came along, um, you've, you have a personal connection to the story. Can you tell us a little bit about that? So I've known various parts of the May family for about 30 years now. I, um, I've grown up in the same town as them. I lived with them for a while. Um, and in 2017, I was back in Tamworth where I grew up and caught up with uh, one of Mark's brothers, Steve, when I was there. And Steve looked terrible. He just looked awful. Um, and he'd just been down into the gorge country to look for Mark then. And maybe I'll, um, I'll pick that back up a little bit um, later on in the interview, but perhaps let's talk about Mark. He, The picture, I guess, that I get from the book is that he was a very beautiful young man with a brilliant mind. Uh, and at one point he was, you know, in some ways on track to become a lawyer or, or maybe a public servant of some kind. But he was also very unhappy as a young man and he fell into substance abuse and eventually addiction from quite a young age. How would you describe the young Mark? Yeah, you've, you've captured the dichotomy there quite well. So in, if you cut it some ways, he is a man that he's got, um, or a young man that has got the whole world in front of him. He is brilliant. Um, he almost topped the state in the HSC, and he largely did that um, on his own. He was very good looking. The the women that I spoke to who knew him from 30 years ago, the first thing they said to me was, oh, he was beautiful. That was That's their opening line. And it was a combination not only of physical looks, but he also, he was gentle. He wasn't aggressive with women, and they really responded to that. Um, but at the same time, um, he had been <clears throat> sexually assaulted as a young man, and that had um, a big impact on him. Um, he wasn't treated for that at the time, unfortunately. He um, had lots of mental health issues as well, so he wasn't able to sleep. He was being treated for depression. Um, and unfortunately, at university, he sort of fell off the rails a little bit um, and started taking drugs and, um, yeah, as we say, ended up in the gorges. Mm. And and reading about his young life, you know, you don't um, you don't uh, point any fingers as an author, um, but you do allow us to see some of the ways in which Mark was failed as a young man. It's in some, you know, some quite mundane every everyday sort of ways that that I think young people often have been um, uh, failed by education systems and, and health systems and um, uh, you know some of those I guess. Yeah, more everyday ways, but also he did. He he talked about his abuse. He um, confessed to a priest. He, uh, he he told his parents, and he he really didn't get the support that he needed. That's fairly clear from early on. That's right. There's a couple of things here. I think that since the 1970s, when Mark was a kid, or even the 1960s, um, we've come a long way. We're much better at dealing with these things. Um, it's good to also understand Mark's parents. Mark's father was this really incredible man. He, um, his, his family were, um, oh, I don't know, you, you don't want to use the word peasants, but they were essentially peasants living, they, they'd grow fruit and vegetables um, for markets. 
Um, this kid, he'd worked really, really hard, got himself scholarships first to school and then to university. His parents didn't have any money to support him. He'd worked on the wharves and boxing. Um, it's my understanding he was a prize fighter as well. Um, and he'd sort of got himself um, a great job, got himself through university um, by being incredibly hardworking and incredibly tough. And he saw this formula as a way to get through life, and he applied it to Mark, and it didn't work. Um, and, and the second thing is that he, he told his parents about his first sexual assault, but he didn't tell them about the second one. Mm. So they just didn't know. They didn't know. Um, so, yeah, there's this sort of... <clears throat> um, it's a combination of not knowing, applying probably the wrong methods, um, yeah, and a whole lot of things has happened to this kid. Mm. And there are uh, moments, I guess, in in his um, his teens where he's clearly struggling with something, and and he's being prescribed um, sleeping tablets. But I guess, as you say, this is the seventies, and there is a system that only knows how to deal with things in a particular way, and and that that medical system isn't isn't picking up that there's there's something else underlying there that that probably needs to be dealt with. Yes, look, this is a bit tricky because I've only got Mark's um, view on this. So, and he's describing all the drugs that he's been prescribed, and the stuff he's prescribed is amazing. Um, but I, I don't actually know from the doctor's side what mm. they were trying to do either. So, um, yes, but look, whatever was happening, it, it wasn't working. Mm. And and you mentioned um, Mark's parents there, and you've you've you start the book really um, early on, painting that picture of of who Mark's father in particular is, um, who his parents are, and um, their their life together before Mark and his brothers are born, and then we see this sort of collection of like vignettes, I guess, these scenes from um, uh, Mark's early life. And we get through, largely through the lens of Mark, but also with a spotlight on other members of his family. We get this um, this sense of, of, yeah, the context in which he grew up and a sense um, of his, his, his family um, from quite early on. And then he is one of seven brothers and some of his siblings feature more strongly in the story as it goes along. Um, and I, yeah, I wanted to ask you a little bit about how you selected those stories because I think as a reader, or the effect that that it had for me was to you have this this selection of it seems very carefully chosen stories um, that come together to film a sort of a patchwork picture of Mark and of the the family that he came from. So yeah, I'd love to hear a little bit more about how you went about choosing which stories made it into the book. Sure. So it's one of the um, difficult things about writing a book like this is that, you know, I've got a man who is 62 years old and I'm essentially telling his story in three and a bit hours. I think that's roughly how long it takes to to read the book. So um, I've been pretty ruthless with the stories that I've told. Um, I've spoken to a lot of people who are really, really kind with their um, stories, their recollections, materials, letters, etc. And unfortunately, quite a lot of them didn't make it into the book. Now, that's not to say that their stories aren't important or that their relationship with Mark wasn't important, but I was trying to tell a particular story about this man's life. Um, and and so I, that's, I chose to focus on 
a few of the brothers. Um, but, you know, his other brothers were very important to him. Um, and, you know, they they helped him along the way as well. Um, same with friends. You know, I've had to be um, fairly selective about, about who I've talked about. I've also had to um, obscure people slightly. So um, there's, there's sections of the book, um, particularly at university, where some of his friends were taking lots of drugs and dealing drugs, etc. But those people are now, lots of them, respectable members of the community. You know, they, um, so I've, um, I've hidden them. I've, um, I've created amalgams of characters. Mm. Um, I've changed names. I've changed events just slightly just so they can't be identified. Mm. I do want to come back to that and ask you about some of the challenges of writing a true story and particularly one where you've got a personal connection to the people in the story. Um, let's go back to Mark and his, his, his story for a moment. So during his time at ANU studying arts and law, Mark's life is increasingly off the rails and you've talked about how he, um, he was using a lot of drugs in that time, he became addicted to heroin, his mental and physical health deteriorated and and at times, um, you know, following that period, he got clean. He made some sort of forays into some form of stability or, or you know, normality. But ultimately, he he's really struggling internally, and he's he's battling not just with his addiction, mental health, uh, and and trauma from his youth, but. He's also struggling with what I understood as a desire to live an authentic life um, and a growing sense that the paths he's expected to take are not the right ones for him. And there's this real tension between his incredible intellect um, and his desire to, to be just in the bush um, and, and, and be in and with nature. Can you tell us a little bit more about his struggle as you, as you saw it? So um, Mark was, when Mark got to university, he was sort of there at the early stages of the hippie movement and he really believed in it. Um, it. It was his philosophy and he saw it as a really legitimate way of life. Um, and he's one of those guys who, who didn't... Um, lots of people seem to come out of it and he didn't. He, he really genuinely believed in it. And that belief was partly because he, he'd read everything. You know, he, he, um, he'd read Jung and Marx and... Um, Thoreau and um, uh, Proudhon and um, about the social contract and he thought he could see this this way for a better life and a better society. He wrote some letters to a friend of his uh, from school um, and they stopped writing sort of midway through that first year of university and in one of these letters he says, look I've, <clears throat> I've seen what making a lawyer I've seen society trying to make me into a lawyer I know I can do it but I don't want it I don't want that I just want to be me I just want to live my own life um, and that's what he did that's what he ended up doing mm. and he did at age 28 he he basically walked into the the remote and extremely rugged uh, gorge country 
and he set himself up in a series of, of rough camps. He was walking incredible distances in and out of the gorge as he needed to. And, you know, you really get the sense there wouldn't be many people who could survive out there alone for days or weeks, let alone decades. The stories that you've chosen from Mark's childhood and his earlier life paint the picture of a man who could survive there. How do you think of Mark in that way? So, um, again, this is actually training that's come from his father. So his father was this incredible bushman. And as a young man, he'd finished school, matriculated early at the age of 16, and then he'd gone to Dorigo to be a timber cutter. And for a couple of years, he worked felling logs um, and basically living in the bush. And he taught a lot of those skills to his sons um, about how to make shelters, how to hunt, how to fish, and how to look out after yourself out in the wild. So although he was quite a cerebral sort of guy, you know, he was intelligent and well-read, he also he could work with his hands, and he knew how to work as well. He could work really hard and make this life happen. Mm. And he uh, he does make it happen for a, a really long time. He has uh, a, a period, I think, of a few years where he comes out of the bush um, and he tries his hand at, at, at living as a public servant, but um, ultimately it's it's it, it doesn't work for him and he ends up back in the gorge country. Now, it's not a spoiler to reveal that Mark is deceased, Although, you know, as you've said, you know some of his brothers well, you never met Mark, as I understand it. Can you tell us how you managed to paint such a detailed and, and vivid picture of him and his internal world without, without that first-hand um, ability to interview him and, and so on? So uh, early on in the research for this project, one of his brothers, Pete, um, Pete was in Sydney and we'd gone to have a meal at a pub and he presented me with this... Um, box full of documents and in that box was a, was a whole lot of things but it, it was um, a memoir that Mark had written of his life up until about the age of 28 as you're saying before he went down into the gorge so the, the memoir is in two parts the first part is up until he finishes school it's typed it's linear um, it's, it's easy to follow um, it's not particularly well written, but it's a first draft, so you can sort of understand it. And it, it sort of just chronicles his life. After that, the, the narrative changes dramatically, and it's, it's much more fractured, it's much more influenced by drugs, there's much more philosophy, um, the logic and arguments are, are much more circular and strange. Um, and you sort of get episodes or scenes rather than a linear progression through time. So from those, from that document, the two parts, I was able to get a really good understanding of not only what Mark was doing, but what he was thinking as a young man. After that, um, I, uh, he had written at some stage a poem about his life in the gorges. The poem's about 20,000 words. It's in rhyming couplets. Um, and... Lots and lots of the scenes that I describe are from that poem about what it was like to live in the bush, you know, and, and his feelings on things and, and how he sort of made it all work. So, so my, my understanding of Mark principally comes 
from these documents, but also from, from letters that he wrote to friends and um, lots of poems that he wrote as well and um, things like that. Mm, and and how incredibly, um, I guess, fortunate for us that he did leave those behind because they, they reveal, you know, you've included some of his letters um, to his friend Mike in the book and they, they reveal that amazing intellect but they also reveal a great wit, a really dry um, um, and sort of dark humour and, and a really an interesting thinker. Um, it's, it's a real joy to read those letters. It really is. They were... That was a real thrill. So I had, um, in the memoir, Mark obscures a lot of people's names, um, as he says, to to try and um, to make sure that they're not hurt by, by what was written. But I did manage to find Mike, and he presented me with these letters. And the letters are so wonderful. They're, they're of a young man, intelligent, funny, looking out into the world, and he's rude, and he's... Um, he's quick, but he's also really kind. He's kind to his friend Mike. Um, and he's sort of this, this quest for what he's going to do with his life is really fascinating to read through the letters. And, and as you mentioned, yeah, that kindness, I think you, you um, allow that to be revealed in a lot of different ways through the book. I guess I don't want to gloss over some of the, um, the less romantic aspects of Mark and, and who he is. So he, you know, he, along the way, he does, um, he does cause hurt. He, he has um, a, a short relationship with a woman who falls pregnant and he, he really um, chooses to have nothing to do with his son. Um, you know, there are certainly people along the way who, who are affected by and hurt um, by um, some of the things that Mark does. There's so many things I want to ask you about that, but we are so close <laughs> to being out of time. So I guess I'll try and just wrap it all up into, you know, as a, as a reader, it feels that you could bring a lot of different perspectives to Mark's story. It would be easy to say that his story is a tragedy, but there's also so much, I think, triumph in there as well. And I wanted to know how you view it on the whole. Is it a tragedy? Is um well, big question to finish off on. Um, um, look, I think there are elements of both in his life. There is terrific sadness in some parts, and there is some triumph being able to to do this to do this thing to be able to live in the bush. And one of the things that I've tried to do with the, with the book is to present it in a way that you can make your own mind up. Um, I, I've, yeah, I give you the question basically about this man's life. Absolutely. And I also wanted to mention the way that you do that, you know, your writing throughout the book, your style is, you could say it's sparse and efficient, but it's, it's absolutely the opposite of empty. It's, it's beautiful, actually. It's, it's evocative. Um, there's poetry in the very careful choices that you make about the words that you use and, and the language that you use. It really was um, a, a fascinating story, beautifully told. So congratulations on the book. Thanks very much, Anna. 
The, if you've just joined us, I've been speaking with Tom Patterson, who's the author of Missing. It's the story of Mark May, who lived for 35 years in um, the remote northwestern gorge country of New South Wales. Um, and, it, yeah, really, really um, interesting read. Um, it is a true story and um, there are, there is um, an afterword in the book where Tom talks more about his process and, and how he was able to put that story together. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos, and interviews, head to the Triple R website at rrr.org.au. You're listening to The Glass House, Anna Strempel filling in for Beth AQ today. Um, I have my next guest on the phone now. Gabrielle Wong is joining me to talk about her recent appointment as a 7th Australian Children's Laureate. Gabrielle, thanks so much for joining me on The Glass House today. My pleasure. Thank you very much for having me, Anna. Uh, It is a pleasure. I'm really looking forward to hearing about the role. I I really don't know very much about the role of Australian Children's Laureate, so it'll it'll be great to hear more from you. Um, I do Mm -hmm. know there are children's laureates in a number of countries around the world as well as here um, and that in Australia the the laureate position um, was first appointed about a decade ago but I'm guessing a lot of people are also hearing about the role for the first time today so it would be lovely if you could um, kick us off by telling us a bit about what a children's laureate does. Okay so um, a children's laureate uh, the Australian Children's Laureate in particular, um, it is appointed in, in order to encourage children to read stories, to immerse themselves in stories, to immerse themselves into create, in creativity. And my theme is to is imagine a story. So that's what I'll be doing because I'm an author as well as a, I'm an illustrator as well as an author, and I'll be encouraging children through workshops to read stories, write stories, and draw stories. And your term is for two years, is that right? Mm-hmm. Yep, I'll be travelling all over Australia doing that, yes. Ah, fantastic. And as I understand it, every laureate has a theme for their two-year term. Could you tell us a little, about, a little bit about your theme, which is Imagine right. a Story? Yes, well, um, stories are so important. Um, Stories help us understand one another. Um, They teach us how to handle aspects of life that are usually out of our control. So, I mean, even if you just take simple stories, which aren't really simple, but short stories like um, Aesop's Fables or Hans Christian Andersen's stories, like The Ugly Duckling, The Boy Who Cried Wolf, they're teaching stories. You can learn a lot about that. But also, um, you can also learn... um, You can also just be immersed in story and an imagination and stories grow out of the imagination so I'm going to be encouraging children to use their imaginations as much as possible because you know all children when they're young they have incredible imaginations and something happens along the way and it's like a muscle you have to use it in order otherwise you'll lose it. 
Now, I understand that um, this, this great encouragement um, to, to, to read and to be involved in stories is something that you didn't necessarily have so much of when, when you were growing up. You've, you've written more than 20 books. You're an artist and an illustrator um, and obviously a very talented storyteller. But as I understand it, um, as you were growing up, your father would say, what can you learn from a story? They're just made up. Where were you taking your encouragement from? Yes, well, uh, when I was young, there were actually there was no there were no stories about you know a ten year old Chinese girl uh, who was the protagonist of her own of of the story, and so when I was young, I really felt that I didn't fit in. Um, I looked Chinese, but I w- I'm actually. I was born in Australia, and I'm fourth generation Chinese Australian. But I always felt as though I didn't fit in because uh, I was the only Asian face in my whole school. Uh, I was the only Asian kid in the whole um, my whole neighbourhood or many neighbourhoods around me. So, um, so I think that stories for me when I was young, I'm not a matter of escape. But later on, when I when I was writing my own stories, I thought, I'm, I'm going to be writing for that young child that was me, you know, a Chinese-Australian girl who felt like she didn't belong, who loved art. And, and so that's the sort of the stories I write now because I think there are many children from diverse cultures who, feel, who still feel like that, who still feel they don't belong in Australia. Um, so I think it's very important that they read stories by diverse about diverse characters by diverse authors. Absolutely. And, um, yeah, that, that idea of, of representation, um, I think, you know, we've been hearing a lot more about that and about that period of, of time where I think as a country we were just starting to understand the importance of representation or perhaps we're only starting to um, really uh, understand it um, as, a, as a nation now, I would love to hear more about in your engagement around the country as you're travelling around in your, in your laureate position, um, how you'll be hoping to, um, to, I guess, raise that for children or to, to tap into that um, for, for children. Uh, yeah, I think um, what I'll be doing in my... So I'll be travelling around Australia and because I'm an illustrator as well, I, I like to... and. I think that drawing, doodling, and that sort of thing often gets um, bypassed because everybody can draw when they're two to four years old. Everybody can. And then they, something happens and they decide that they can't draw. So when I do workshops in schools, a lot of, and I always do a drawing workshop of a Chinese dragon, and that's what I'll be doing in my workshops when I travel around as laureate. There'll be children who have decided they can't draw already and this is like in grade you know four and so um i think it's very important so part of my workshops will be encouraging children to draw another part will be encouraging them to write stories and engage in the artworks because i'll be uh go doing my workshops in regional art galleries and libraries which i think is great because I, I i like to um i think it's the regional areas should have an opportunity also to have somebody visit them rather than just the uh, main cities. Uh, and in my um, workshops, what I want to do is I want to, um, I want to explore 
uh, with children their own heritage because everybody has come from somewhere else to Australia, unless you're uh, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. We have all come from somewhere else. And if you realise that, then um, it's, you know, I think it's important for young people to be aware of their origins in order to be, to be tolerant and accepting of others. Um, then you realise that you know you're not you know you're not the privileged one. That everybody we all came from somewhere else, and except for Indigenous people. So um, I think that that's what I want to emphasise uh, in my in my workshops, mm. in order to bring about acceptance and yeah belonging and understanding. And that idea that um, as an, an illustrator and an artist yourself that you'll be not only focusing on reading but also on drawing and, on, and the many different ways that, that stories can be told. Um, I'd love to hear a bit more. I know that one of the issues you'll be exploring under your theme is um, to do with audiobooks and reading aloud. And so I was hoping to also hear a little bit more about that. That's obviously something that, you know, with iPads in schools and, and that sort of thing, we're probably seeing... Um, um, more children and young people engage with stories through those mediums as well. So, yeah, I'd love to hear a little bit more about how you'll be focusing on that part of the theme. Yeah. Um, with audiobooks, uh, I think... And, and my interest in audiobooks comes from personal experience because when I was young, I was a really, really poor reader. I, my, you know, my best friend would read five books and I'd still be reading one extremely slow reader and I loved books because I loved story and I loved what story I loved being engaged in a story but I couldn't read the amount of books that I um, wanted to read now luckily we have audio books so audio books not only um, help me read so many more books but it means that because I still feel quite um, what would I call it? I'm, I'm a writer, but I still quite feel quite. I feel it's a challenge to read a book with lots and lots of words, and so audiobooks for me um, are, are just a godsend. And for children who have reading difficulties, um, audio. I would like to encourage parents and children to use audiobooks. Audiobooks can be taken if you belong to a library; they can be borrowed from your local library, downloaded onto your iPad or your laptop. And, and that's what I do. I, I download it onto my, um, onto my iPhone and then I listen to it at all sorts of times. And I just go through so many books now and it's just wonderful. It's magic to me as a very, very slow reader. And the other thing you mentioned was reading aloud to children. I don't think you're ever too old to be read aloud to. Uh, there have been storytellers around for way before books, the printed books. Uh, storytellers were the way that stories got told and people got taught how to live life and how to cope with life. And so um, we all love to be read to. So ch uh, children don't just stop reading to your children when they're, when they're finished with picture books. Keep reading to them, keep reading um, novels to them when they're all the way through primary school. And even, you know, when you're an adult, read to your partner. Um, take it in turns to read a chapter a night, share a, the same book. It's just a wonderful um, thing to do together. 
I'm so glad you mentioned that. It is such a great joy both to read aloud and to be read to for many of us, I think. And, yeah, probably something we really forget about as adults, perhaps until, you know, we find ourselves reading to children again. But, yeah, I can recall having a friend who um, we would um, alternate between us, read chapter for chapter, and it was just the most lovely way to pass the time. Oh, fantastic. That's, that forms a real bond, I think, as well between, you know, in a relationship. I love that. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I have a two-and-a-half-year-old now and my partner and I spend a lot of time reading aloud to her and, and we we probably enjoy that half as much at least as she does, at least for the first 20 reads of her book. Yeah. <laughs> but I wondered yeah. then about children reading aloud to each other as well. Is that something, you know, that you'll be encouraging them to do through your workshops? Uh that, you know, I haven't ever thought about that, but I think that's all. Thank you for adding that to my, you know, to what <laughs> I could be doing. I'll explore that because that's interesting. And I don't know if in schools whether they... I remember we used to have to read out aloud in school. In front of the class, we had to read out a, a paragraph or something, and that was just to practice our reading. But And I know in schools in when they do... Um, they have a class text that the teacher, I mean, this is a wonderful thing to do, for a teacher to, re, to choose a class text, and it happens a lot in primary schools. A teacher chooses a class text, and every day they might read a chapter to the whole class. So whether, whether those, those children have the reading difficulties or not, it doesn't matter because everybody's listening and everybody's at the same place in that story. Yeah. So that is, I, think I really encourage teachers to do that um, with, with their with their classes. Absolutely. And, you know, I feel I feel sad that we've been cut a little bit short by our technical issues, Gabrielle, because there's so much else that I'd like to ask you about with the role, but we really are out of time. The show is almost over. So, unfortunately, we um, will need to leave it there. Thank you so much for coming on to speak with me and I wish you the best for your two years in the role as Australian Children's Laureate. Thank you so much, Anna, and thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. And um, the uh, Gabrielle's role will or appointment will actually um, be launched at the State Library in Melbourne. Um, or pardon me, that may actually have taken place just yesterday. So congratulations to Gabrielle for the role you've been listening to. Anna Strempel filling in for Beth AQ on The Glass House. Um, and that's pretty much it for me today. Enjoy the rest of your Wednesday and stick with Triple R. This is Beth AQ. Thanks for listening to the podcast of The Glass House, a weekly radio show that airs on Triple R each Wednesday. We hope you enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch via Twitter at BethanyAQ or the Triple R website.